0: verses 2 through 8. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. James is right after Hebrews, right before First and Second Peter. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So if you remember last week, I said that we are going to be talking about heavenly wisdom. That's kind of our overarching theme as we go through the book of James. And we're going to be looking today at Heavenly Wisdom Concerning Trials, kind of my subtitle. Heavenly Wisdom Concerning Trials. And I'm gonna give you five responses that we are to have to trials. So, title, Heavenly Wisdom Concerning Trials, and we're gonna be looking at five responses that we should have to trials. John MacArthur says that how a person handles trouble will reveal whether his faith is living or dead, genuine or imitation, saving or non-saving. How we handle trouble will reveal whether our faith is living or dead, genuine or imitation, saving or non-saving. And so one of the first ways we can see how our faith is being revealed in trials is if we respond to trials by rejoicing at the maturity they can bring. So point one, we need to respond to trials by rejoicing at the maturity that they can bring. So just a quick definition, what is a trial? Well, through the show of hands that we already had, trials have a huge, sometimes we can think, oh, trial is just, I'm being persecuted for my faith. trials actually are just various trials for a reason. They are varied both in what the trial can be, whether it's financial difficulty, physical illness, persecution, betrayal of friendships. It can be a breadth of suffering, but it can also be various degrees. You know, in my own life, I've had minor and major trials. So not every trial is of equal weight in our own life, but it doesn't mean it's not a trial, right? It doesn't mean that it is not one of those various forms of suffering. So the other thing, and, and I know in this room we can all say we've had trials, but if for some reason you have escaped trials, it is if, not when, you will have a trial. So if you have escaped them, or if you're currently not in one, this is to prepare us for when the trial will come. Uh, 2, sorry, 2 Timothy 3.12 3, says, All who desire to be godly in Christ Jesus will suffer. And Matthew 5.10-12 says, Remember the connection we said there would be lots of connections between the Sermon on the Mount and James? Here's our first one. You're going to go through trials, right? James 5, 10 through 12 says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Sound familiar? Count it all joy? Rejoice. Blessed are you when you have this kind of suffering. And John 15, 20, Jesus says, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, how much more will they persecute you? So we know we're going to suffer, and we know we're going to go through trials, because that is the way that God is refining us, and because we live in a fallen world, right? Our whole study of redemptive history the past two years, we live in a world that is not as it should be. So how then do we suffer? We are to suffer with joy. And so when I I thought about All the different ways we could talk about this, and I came to the book of Hebrews. I think the perfect example of how we suffer with joy is our Savior, because as we saw again in the lesson, suffering with joy doesn't mean that you don't have deep pain, grief, sorrow, and some of those pains and griefs can be with us a lifetime. It doesn't mean that we just put a smile on our face and say, I'm counting it joy, I'm counting it joy, right? It's not a fake happiness that we're trying to put on, but Hebrews said that Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and we know from the Gospels that he sweat drops of blood before the cross, that he cried out to the Father that the cup could pass, and the picture of Christ on the cross is one of suffering and anguish, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet Hebrews said he did it for the joy set before him, and he walked through it perfectly. So walking through trials with joy really focuses on the eternal perspective, right? That where you are right now is not the end of the story that what you're enduring right now is not the end. And in that we have great hope. Warren Wiersbe says, Our values determine our evaluations. If we value comfort more than character, then trials will upset us. If we value the material and the physical more than the spiritual, we will not be able to count it joy. If we live only for the present and forget the future, the trials will make us bitter, not better. Reminds me of Job's wife. If you don't have an eternal perspective, you say, curse God and die, right? But Job's perspective was to say, oh, if only, remember Job's three wishes we talked about? He said, if if these three things could be fixed, then the trial would be worth it. If there was one who could stand between me and God, right? If I had a mediator, and if I had one who could resurrect me from the dead, right? If if this life didn't end, there was eternal hope, and I'm forgetting the third one, but it'll come back to me, I'm sure, at the end. But he had three wishes, and they were all on an eternal perspective that he could be Redeemed, forgiven. There was one that could forgive him, one who could mediate for him, and one who could resurrect him. So we don't want to, we want to be better, not better. And to do that, we have to have an eternal perspective. And, and James gives us one, right? He says, right after he says, count it all joy, he says, testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness will have its full effect that you'll be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Again, Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says, You will be perfect as my, you need to be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. And here in James, it's talking about a wholeness, a completeness. It doesn't mean that you're going to be sinless, but it means he's bringing to complete maturity. He's bringing to a wholeness. And that is what God promised in Philippians, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, right? So he's going to keep working in our life to refine us, to bring us to that perfection, So the first way we respond to trials is to rejoice at the maturity they will bring. The second way we respond to trials is by asking God for wisdom to face the trial. Because though we can have this head knowledge, we are but dust. And there are days a trial can overwhelm you and you can't get out of bed. And there are days the emotions can cloud your mind and you can't think straight. And so you can believe this, but sometimes it's very hard to act it out. And that brings a second point that we ask God for wisdom. And he says, if you ask, he will give generously. And so as I was thinking through this, another commentator said, if we understand that one of the definitions of wisdom in Hebraic thoughts, the way the Hebrews thought about this, is they thought of wisdom as a skill. If you think of wisdom as a skill, then we recognize that what, what James wants us to ask is for the skill to handle trials in our lives. I like that specificity. Think about it. You're going to have to go through trials, but it requires skill. My kids are on a basketball team right now, and they came back from the first practice, and they're like, we didn't get to scrimmage. We just had to work on drills. Like, yes, because before you can play the game, you have to know how to the fundamentals, right? And so I was thankful that that's what was happening in their life, but they just want to, in our life, you have to have skill to do anything well. And the wisdom you're asking for is the skill to go through the trial. The trial isn't necessarily going to be taken from you. Perfect wisdom doesn't mean you know how to end it. It, know, it means you know how to go through it and how to go through it well. We live in a world that says we're, we're told every day, pretty much every moment, that you shouldn't suffer, that you should be happy, and that anything that gets in the way of that happiness, you need to get rid of. You know, if it doesn't, if it's not your truth. Reject it. If it doesn't make you feel comfortable, don't do it. If it's not, everything in our life is about comfort and instant gratification. Uh, honestly, I was even thinking as I did this, like maybe I should get rid of Amazon Prime. <laughs> make <laughs> myself go to the store. <laughs> like my kids truly believe, and it just scared me that my kids truly are like, pretty much can't you press a button and have it? I'm like, no, <laughs> no you can't. But in their world, that's what they see, right? That's what they see, that we just go on our phones and we press a few buttons and it shows up on your doorstep, right? So God says we can't, uh, trials, <laughs> trials are the great reverser of that. And if we live in a mindset that we're supposed to be happy, we will make the trial harder than it needs to be. God calls us to many things, joy and blessedness, but he never promises your life's gonna be happy. When we make that a goal, and we have to end trial because of that, we make it, you're adding a burden to your trial. You're gonna make, because the trial will continue to come until you submit to it. So we're asking for the skill and endurance to face the trial and to walk through it with faith. Matthew 7, again, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 7 through 12 says, "'Ask, and it will be given to you. "'Seek, and you will find. "'Knock, and it will be opened to you. "'For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, "'and to the one who knocks it will be opened. "'Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, "'will give him a stone? "'Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? "'If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children,' how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? He will give you wisdom in abundance to persevere and to give you the skill to walk through the trial. The third point we have, so the first point was we need to respond to trials because they mature our faith. Respond to trials with joy because of the maturing they bring. Two, you're going to respond by asking for wisdom to endure the trial. And three, We look at trials as a great leveling experience. So remember I said last week that some people feel like James is a disjointed book, and this next section is one of the reasons. Like, oh, we're talking about trials, and then rich man do this, poor man do this, and then it's back to endure the trial and you get a crown of life. And it doesn't seem to flow, but it really does flow. Because at this point in time in history, but even in life, but in this point in time in history, a lot of the people he's addressing who were poor became poor because of their faith. They probably lost their jobs and lost their homes or couldn't go back to where they came from. Remember, everybody had come to Jerusalem, and that's where you see in Acts that there was actually a a, a problem. That's where Stephen comes into the scene because he has to distribute food to the widows, right? Because you have all these people who stayed in Jerusalem because that's where the church was founded. So you have this poverty that came, in some senses, because of their faith and because of persecution from it. But you also had a a class divide because of poverty where the rich and the poor didn't associate. And even though that happens naturally, I think in every society, in our society, we view it as, we want to help people and we want we it, to, it's not shameful to have a friend who's poor, but then you wouldn't be associating at all. So he's addressing trials and how we're supposed to think about them. And he talks first to the poor brother. He says in verse 9, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So he says to the poor brother, You need to rejoice in your spiritual riches. Everything in this life is fleeting, but you are a child and daughter of the son, and you have an inheritance that can't be touched. You have a home in heaven. You are a daughter or son of the king. You have spiritual riches in abundance, and when you go through trials, you need to focus on that. Dr. Varner in his commentary says that wisdom brings to the poor man a new sense of honor as he learns that he matters in the church, that he matters in the world, and he matters to God on the other side of the coin, the rich brother needs to exalt in his humility, realizing that when trials come, they help him see the fleeting nature of material things, the fleeting nature of anything that you might be find your comfort or your meaning in. And again, Dr. Varner says, wisdom teaches that life can change in a moment, and only trust in God lasts and brings security. John MacArthur summed this section up well when he said, As the poor brother forgets all his earthly poverty, so the rich brother forgets all his earthly riches. The two are equal by faith in God. When you lose a daughter, a son, a wife, husband, or other loved one, wealth is no comfort. When you lose your health, are betrayed by a friend, are wrongfully maligned, money cannot buy peace of mind or decrease the pain. Trials are the great equalizer, bringing all of God's children to dependence on him. Wealth does not bring God closer, nor does poverty keep him further away. So our fourth point is we respond to trials by looking beyond the trial to the reward. We look beyond the trial to the reward. That's verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trials, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. We must have a persevering faith. And we can't have that instant gratification, temporal mindset if we are to walk through trials with skill and with faith. Again, if we don't want to be Job's wife who becomes bitter, we, and we want to be Job, we have to look to the end. And it's whenever we, I think of Peter, I'm sure there's so much more in this passage than I'm going to pull out right now, but Peter walking on the water, he looks at Christ and he can walk on the water. He looks away and he falls in the storm, right? We have to keep our eyes fixed on Christ and we have to keep our eyes on the end. It's like an athlete who punishes his body over and over and over and over and over again so that he can achieve the gold medal, right? You go through the difficulty to achieve the reward. So as we think through trials, we have to look to the end. If you look anywhere else, you don't get what you need to get through it, right? Because you get overwhelmed by the circumstances. And fifth, we need to respond to trials by trusting in God's goodness, James 13, read with me, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, for he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In trials, we are quickly tempted to question God's goodness. Think again, our redemptive history study, Adam and Eve fell, and what is the first thing that they started doing? They started blaming others. (laughs) Well, it's the serpent's fault. Well, it's the woman's fault. Well, it's the it's no, personal responsibility was one of the first re- going out the window, one of the first results of the fall. And when we go through trials, though the trial isn't necess- is not a temptation, in the trial, temptations to sin can come up. And then, well, that's God's fault. I wouldn't be struggling with this if God hadn't allowed this in my life. Well, God must not be good if this is happening. Well, He must not love me. And suddenly we're questioning and attacking God's character because our life is hard. And if God was good, it wouldn't be, right? That's the lie that we're being told and that we're being convinced of but we have to remember 1 Corinthians 10:13 no temptation is overtaking you except what is common to man and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it i read a great definition that testing God allows tests in our life and tests have a good purpose that we might grow temptation has an evil person that we might sin God never tempts us He never leads us to a place where we would sin. And and we've said this before, and we'll probably say it many other times, one of the greatest anchors in a trial is to trust and believe that God is good. And one of the first areas you will be attacked is to doubt that. God is good. As I was thinking through this lesson, I was reminded, those are our five points, right? We're going to trust God because The maturity trials brings. We're going to ask wisdom. We're going to respond by asking wisdom to walk through the trials. We're going to respond by seeing trials as a great leveling experience. We're going to respond by looking to the eternal hope. And we're going to respond to trials by trusting God's goodness. What does that look like practically? And I was thinking about this, and I remember distinctly, I got married May 13th, 2005. So it was May 2005. It was the Sunday before my wedding. And I was sitting in church, and my sister came and she said, yeah, I need to talk to you. Come now. And I knew instantly that it was very serious. And we walked outside, and the pastor's wife was waiting, and I knew somebody had died. And I said, I'm not walking down to the office, I'm not waiting until you get me somewhere else. Tell me now who's dead. There were lots of people coming to the wedding. I had a whole running list in my mind of who could have been in a car accident. And she said, Stephanie. Stephanie, she's my cousin, she's my best friend, just nine months apart, grew up together, and she had been killed in a drunk driving accident. Her, her baby, and her husband. And so then they walked me down to the pastor's office, and we were walking into the college pastor's office. Rick was standing there. Rick was close to all of us, knew all of us, and he said, What do you feel? And you're in shock. And I don't remember what I said, but I just remember you have so many feelings, and you can't even get them out, but I think I probably said, I'm kind of in shock right now. Nothing had settled. And he said, What do you think? And I remember thinking, it, Crazy thoughts come, and all like, How did it You want to know all the details. How did it happen? Why did it happen? Even though you know the end result, you almost think by knowing the information, maybe you can change the story, right? And then you think, Am I going to should I cancel my wedding? Should I be going back to Idaho for a funeral? Like, how does this play? Like, you just have thousands of thoughts that just kind of poured out. And then he said, "What do you know?" Well, I know that God is sovereign. I know that God is good. I know that God is in control. And he was trying to, in that moment, even in the shock, walk me through. It's what Pastor Brian said a couple weeks ago. You have those thoughts, it's that Martin Lloyd-Jones quote, you have those thoughts that come at you. You wake up in the morning, they're not premeditated, they're just the thoughts that happen. The thoughts that happen in shock when a trial comes, it's unexpected. The thoughts that happen just as the day is going. And then there's the thoughts you take captive and the thoughts that you renew your mind with and the thoughts that you take control and tell yourself what's true. And he was walking you through that. You can feel a lot and you can think a lot, but you have to end in what you know. And what you have to know is the word of God. And it went on. She died in May. We got married. I think in June, we got a phone call. One of our groomsmen, one of my husband's best friends, his whole family was killed in a car accident. Parents and siblings, all of his siblings, gone. Then we got another phone call, and I remember thinking, I don't want to answer the phone anymore. And actually went, the man who wrote this commentary I keep quoting from, Dr. Varner, his daughter I went to school with, killed him by a drunk driver. And I got to where I didn't want to get like, my husband would get up, and he'd give me a kiss to go to work, and I'd think, you're driving the L.A. freeways. You're driving the busiest freeway in the nation. You're not coming home tonight, right? Everyone's going to die in a car accident. That's how I felt. And I was gripped by this fear. So back before we had, you know, apps for everything, I put it on about three by five cards in five colors. And I picked the f- five things I feared the most, and I wrote down verses and quotes about them, and I carried with them because I couldn't even bring to my My fear was paralyzing enough. I couldn't even pull the memory verses out. I just had to have it. I just had to have it. And I remember reading, I don't remember when I read it, but I think it was around this time, trusting God. And he has three things that he says, and I've said this again here, but I, I never tire of it. We trust God for three reasons. One, he is all-powerful. So in the car accident with Stephanie, I could think, God is in heaven and God loves me, but he didn't have the power to prevent that from happening. He didn't have the power to stop the drunk driving accident. We live in a fallen world and God's not powerful enough. right? I could doubt that, but he is powerful enough. He could have stopped it. Well, if he could have stopped it, you must not have the wisdom, right? You must not have the wisdom to know. There's so many things going on in the world. He just can't keep all his balls in the air, right? So God didn't have the wisdom to prevent it, but he has perfect wisdom. So if he has perfect wisdom and he has perfect power, well, then he must not be good because why would a good God let this happen? But he's perfectly good. And so because you know that everything touches your life through the hands of a God who has perfect power to do anything he needs to do for your trial and perfect wisdom to know what you can handle and what you can't and what trials should come through your life and what will refine you. And perfect goodness to do it in all love and for your good, you can trust him. And you can say with Psalm 11, 84, 11, no good thing does the Lord withhold from those who walk uprightly. And Romans 8, 23, all things work together for good. And you can say with Paul, I consider the, the, the sufferings of this present age not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed. And he's not saying there's not suffering right? He's just saying there's something infinitely greater that's coming. And then the other thing you have to do, and this is the hardest one, is you have to submit to the trial. When we go through this, you have to submit to the trial. And submission can equal suffering. Again, the, the picture of Christ, Christ came to suffer, right? He came to suffer and to die for us, but that's not the end of the story, Right? That was why he came the first time, it's not why he's coming the second time. And then I remember I just read a book by Elizabeth Elliot, it was on discipline, and she talked about um, tr- uh, trials at one point, and she said when people are, go- she was talking about the discipline of emotions. So trials came up, emotions are hard, and she said, when people go through trials, they need to know two things, that they are loved and that it will be okay. And we have to be careful not to do that in a trite, trite Christian way, like, oh, God loves you. And knowing Elizabeth Elliot and the trials of her life, she wasn't saying it that way. But you have to be the person who, as you walk through the valley, and as you weep with those who weep, and as you grieve with those who grieve, and as you are going through it with them, continually remind them that they are in the hands of an all-loving God, and that this isn't the end of the story. Because it doesn't mean it's going to be okay in this life, but it is going to be okay, right? That was the whole story of redemptive history that we studied last year. He has come to reverse the curse. He has come to make all the sad things untrue. And if we truly grasp, which I know we can't, eternity, then we realize how much, so I miss Stephanie, and I'll miss Stephanie for 70 years, right? Or however long I live. And then I get billions of unending years with her. So how long is 70 years in light of billions? It's like us being apart for a day. Actually, the more billions that go on, it's gonna become pretty insignificant, right? Like milliseconds in light of eternity. And I don't say that to act like it wasn't horrible or grievous, I'm just saying you have to have the perspective that it's not over. My story with Stephanie is not over. My story with anyone we lose is not over. For everyone who loves Jesus, it's happily ever after, right? For everyone who loves Jesus, it's a happily after, ever after ending. It is, as we ended last year in our study, Revelation, uh, Revelation 21. I thought I knew exactly where it was. Oh, 3, it says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Behold, I am making all things new. That's the end of the story. So today I asked us to end a little bit differently. I have a hymn I'd like us to sing. It's Jesus on my cross have taken, and there should be handouts on your sheets, and Heather's going to come up and lead us in that as we close.